The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Thank you, Sheldon. Good morning again, everyone. Uh, I, I'm still rejoicing in our baptismal service last week. Um, it really was a joy to baptize some among us. Uh, and it was delightful to hear the testimonies of faith and the specific ways God has been at work in their lives. And I hope you were encouraged about the grace and power of the gospel as we did that. As Sheldon mentioned, he had shared two weeks ago on gospel-driven evangelism. Uh, so I'm taking the baton and continuing on that theme this week. And then Sean is going to add one more sermon next week. I thought it would serve you to hear a bit of our thinking behind these, this handful of sermons on evangelism. We are four and a half years into establishing a local church from zero, from scratch. I can't say that without acknowledging with joy that Jesus is the one who's building this local church. We neither want that ultimate responsibility nor believe that it is within our power to accomplish. Yet our efforts as pastors and your efforts alongside us are involved. As Psalm 127.1a says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So we are trying to labor faithfully and dependently. Building a house, of course, requires planning. You have to have some sense of what you want the house to look like, what rooms it should have and how those rooms should be connected. And you have to have some sense of what order you're going to attempt to build in. You could attempt to build a bit of everything simultaneously, but that doesn't work well when one thing needs to be built on another. So trying to install windows, for example, before you've built walls is probably not the best approach. In four and a half years, we have had the opportunity to build some important things. And I think because, God's work, because of God's work that has been underneath our work, we've been building some things well. When I talk to some of you, it's clear that you are happy with much of what we've been building together. And it's kind of tempting to just kick back and to enjoy what we have. But what we're building is not yet complete. We need to add one more floor. The first level that we focused on together was building gospel doctrine, understanding and responding to the heart and the implications of the good news of God's grace to us in Christ. We've learned to think about what the gospel means and how it affects everything. The next level we've been working on together is gospel culture, experiencing the relational beauty of the gospel together as a local church. We've learned to be attentive to and deliberate about how the gospel has, is calling us to live with one another. Neither of these levels is complete. We can't neglect continuing to build and refine them. But the structure is in place and we trust that it is sufficiently de developed to hold up what is next. And what's next is focusing on gospel mission. We need to think about how the gospel moves us to share our faith in Christ with others as we adorn it and adorn its proclamation through serving those around us in love. So our goal in these few sermons is to begin to lay the first bricks for this next floor that we need to build. We don't expect the job to be done in just a few sermons. I, 
I can remember many times in church where I've seen the kind of approach to say, okay, we're weak in an era. Let's just throw in a sermon about that. And that should fix that and let's keep going. No, we realize that the culture we want to build takes time to build. It's, uh, it requires that our thinking and our practices and our priorities are transformed. So this is going to be for us a sustained effort over time. We want gospel mission to become a priority. We want to grow in our practice of it as a local church. So for now, what we're trying to do is just get it on the agenda. Get it out into the air we're breathing and thinking about. Beginning in September, we'll be preaching our way through the book of Acts. It's a wonderful book to sit in and be transformed by as we watch God shape the early followers of Jesus and send them to those around them, both near and far, with the gospel. So today, please make your, your way with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be focusing on verses 5 and 6. Now, we preached through this letter to the Colossians in our first year as a local church. Uh, I was working on a new sermon for this week, but after giving lots of energy and time to helping with our 50th wedding anniversary celebration for my parents, I realized I could not complete that message. So instead, I'm going to preach an old sermon from nearly four years ago, which is scary to think about. How many of you were here in July 2019? Yeah, a few. There were a few. Yeah, yeah. I know Dane was here because I remember he didn't appreciate my opening illustration to that sermon at all. <laughs> no, I've changed it. So, okay. um, you know, as I read through that manuscript, I, I was not at all surprised that this text has lost none of its vitality and relevance. It is, after all, the Word of God, and is therefore both timeless and timely. Colossians 4 gives us direction regarding a question we all face every day, whether we're aware of it or not. How are we, as believers, to live among those who are not believers? How are we as believers to live among those who are not believers? Let's read Colossians 4, 5 to 6, and pay attention to what God is saying to us in his holy word. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we look to the work of your Spirit uh, to open our eyes to the meaning, uh, to the significance of what you're saying to us, and to transform us, Lord. We want to become more like Jesus, and we cannot do that apart from the work of your Spirit. So we look to you this morning, depending on you. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple of weeks ago, I shared a bit about the exercise routine I'm building I'm proud to report that I have managed to swim consistently twice per week in the last several weeks. I think Thursday morning I was like, I don't want to do this. And so I, I pray and I'm like, okay, Lord, please help me to just get going and to enjoy this. And I did enjoy it. So onwards and upwards. need to keep layering in, in things. So earlier this week, though, I think it was Tuesday, uh, I was doing my laps at the pool at the YMCA. I'm still building endurance, so I tend to do them in sets, like sets of four or five, and then take a little break. And so I'm in one of those breaks, I'm standing in the shallow end, I'm catching my breath, and suddenly I detect this wonderful smell. I recognize it immediately, but I'm confused. Why am I smelling the distinct, delicious scent of donuts here in the shallow end of the swimming pool? Then it hit me in a moment of realization and exasperation. 
Now, we had Krispy Kreme this morning, so I'm sure you're aware that they opened their first location. It was just over two weeks ago. But why did they have to be located right across from the Y to assault me during my morning swim? I mean, it's wrong. I really do love donuts. They're one of my weaknesses. So it felt like cruel and unusual punishment while I'm catching my breath trying to swim to be smelling these donuts, just like, like tempting me to come over there. I didn't go over there, thankfully. And I didn't know I'd get one this morning, so it worked out. You know, God has located each of us in particular places where our lives intersect with unbelievers around us. And he wants our lives and words to have a distinct aroma for them to experience. In our passage today, Paul tells the Colossian believers that their lives ought to smell like Jesus, to be marked by his wisdom and grace. And if we, like them, know Jesus, uh, and if we've experienced his grace and are maturing in him, then our lives ought to be marked by him in these same distinctive ways. So the big idea here, then, is this. The aroma of our lives and words ought to be marked by the wisdom and grace of our Savior. The aroma of our lives and words ought to be marked by the wisdom and grace of our Savior. We are called to intentionality in the way we conduct our lives and our conversations as we live among people who do not share our faith in Christ. To a distinctiveness that comes from Jesus and points to Jesus. Two weeks ago, as Sheldon shared, he, he pointed out and kind of highlighted an image in Romans 10 of the beautiful feet of those who bring the good news to others. Here, Paul instructs that our lives and our speech, in general and in sharing the gospel, should be equally attractive to those around us. What we have here in these two verses are two mandates. Live in ways marked by Christ's wisdom and speak in ways marked by Christ's grace. So we're going to dig into those. Let's look at living in ways marked by Christ's wisdom. Now, the idea of walking has been a recurring theme. It's a recurring theme in the book of Colossians and in Paul's other letters. We came across it a few weeks ago also. And it's speaking to the way we live our entire lives. Uh, you can picture that back then they walked everywhere. You know, I mean, very few people would have had the privilege of riding an animal to go very far. So they did a lot of walking. So walking becomes a metaphor for all of life because so much of life is walking. In chapter 1, verse 10 of this book, Paul prayed for these Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Because Christ reigns over our entire life, everything about the way we conduct ourselves, the whole pattern of our lives, should please Him. So that includes the way we live in relationships with those who are not believers. And in this respect, our lives should be marked by wisdom. This letter is marked by wisdom. In Colossians, wisdom is the foundation of a life that is pleasing to God. It governs Paul's approach to discipling others. It's a treasure hidden in Christ. And it sets the tactful tone for how, for how we should teach and correct each other as believers in the local church. Now, doesn't that sound important? Doesn't it sound good? Yet wisdom is not generally highly esteemed. The world around us is determined to live life on their own terms and to keep on making those new mistakes. And even among believers, over the years, as I've had many conversations, I've found that there are many who are suspicious of wisdom. Now, it's wise to be wary of everything that people call wisdom. I've heard believers presenting ways of living as wise that really are a, a, an expression of their fears and a failure to fear God. It takes wisdom to recognize real wisdom. 
But it's tremendously unwise in light of all that the Bible says about wisdom to not have it as an, as an operational category in your life. I've seen where we can value zeal and passion and energy and neglect the voice of wisdom which requires moving a bit more slowly and thoughtfully. Ray Ortland in his commentary on the book of Proverbs warns, if we have love but not wisdom, we will harm people with the best of intentions. If we have courage but not wisdom, we will blunder boldly. If we have truth but not wisdom, we will make the gospel ugly to other people. If we have technology but not wisdom, we will use the best communications ever invented to broadcast stupidity. Yeah, he does not mince words, does he? And haven't you seen that? Haven't you seen that around you? Just like, it's amazing. We can so quickly produce content that would have taken so much effort just 10 years ago. And we produce content so quickly that would have taken so much effort just 10 years ago. And some of it is nonsense. And just not helping anyone. Not thought through in terms of how it can bless and edify people. So take that thought from Ortland and link it right back to the verse we're considering in Colossians 4.5. If the way we live among unbelievers is not marked by wisdom, we can do much damage to others and to the cause of the gospel, even though we may have the best possible intentions. So what is wisdom? Here's a short definition that Ortland provides. Wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. Wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. The book of Proverbs is one of the places in the scripture where we learn a lot about wisdom. We spent some time, not so long ago, in Ecclesiastes, learning some of the hard lessons of wisdom in this fallen world. The reality that we see in the book of Proverbs is that, uh, well, sorry, to, 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 to say something before we get there. One of the things that's comforting is that God doesn't just give us instructions. He gives us his son. So wisdom is a person. And his name is Jesus. And we gain wisdom by being united with him. So one aspect of our gaining wisdom is through our spiritual union with Christ. We grow in wisdom through our relationship with him. Now, now he doesn't just teach us a new set of principles for living. He gives us new desires and new appetites. So this command to walk in wisdom is a call to bring the character of Christ to bear on our relationships with those who do not know him. It's a call to live our lives in tactful, strategic, and winsome ways that display the beauty of God's grace at work in us. And for people who are far from God to experience that grace as it overflows to them in our compassion and kindness and humility and patience and forgiveness. It is a call then to embody the gospel, being mindful that doing so benefits and may attract those who have not yet put their trust in Jesus. For sure, by walking in wisdom, we are much less likely to repel them. In one sense, you can think of instructions for godly living like a musical score. You can play the right notes, but that doesn't mean that anyone will enjoy the song. You know, sometimes... And, and those of us who are parents, you know, they, they, they tell us that our children need these recorders. But they get the recorders long before they can play them. You know? And so we endure them learning to play these songs. And sometimes they're hitting the notes, you know. They're hitting the notes, but it's not music. You know? <laughs> Thankfully, most of them improve. And if they don't, they stop at a point. <laughs> so wisdom is the skill to play the song beautifully with the right timing and the right accents that bring out the nuances of the composition. 
Early in the life of our church, we read a very challenging and very helpful book entitled Gospel Fluency. The author says this, Wisdom is knowledge applied so that we do the right thing at the right time with the right motive in the right way. If you need further persuasion, listen to how the book of Proverbs highlights the insufficiency of good intentions. This is Proverbs 27:14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. <laughs> Timing matters. <laughs> ah, we learned that in our marriage seminar, didn't we? You know, you can have good intentions in talking to your spouse about something, but if you do it at the wrong time, it's probably not going to serve. Proverbs 25:20 20 points out, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Yeah, the Proverbs are helpful there. Let's make it clear that that does not help. So wisdom looks like living with sensitivity to matters of timing and the state of the hearts of those around us so that we position the blessings of the gospel to be received and not rejected. Now, none of this wise living is an attempt to make the world accept us. Jesus was the embodiment of wisdom, and the world emphatically rejected him. And he promised for us that we'd experience the same thing. But what wisdom will do is to ensure, to a significant extent, that the world rejects us for the right reasons. Because they're offended by the gospel rather than our folly or insensitivity or arrogance. Now, look again at Colossians 4-5 in your Bibles. That simply expressed idea, outsiders, doesn't go down well in the pluralistic society that we live in. Or Western pluralism will grant us our private belief in Jesus, and uh, they'll be happy for us if it helps us, but would be horrified at the thought that people whose faith is not in Jesus are outside of anything that matters in an ultimate sense. But that's not what the gospel says. In Ephesians 2, 12 to 13, we're called to remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It serves us to remember as we interact with people on a daily basis that others are still outside, still far off, still alienated from God. And the consequences of remaining outside will be serious and eternal. It serves us to remember while we're breathing the philosophical air around us that if there are no outsiders, if we were never outsiders, then Jesus' life and death were wasted. You know, he didn't need to suffer and die on the cross because there's nothing to reconcile. If there are no outsiders, while we can still learn to live well with others around us, wise living, which has as its goal the display of the grace of Jesus and seeks to make the best use of the time uh, that we have in the pursuit of that goal, and gracious speech, which offers Jesus as the Savior people need, is simply arrogant and anything but beautiful. This command we're considering means that we can't be strangers to outsiders. Or, to put it positively, we're being called to build and invest in friendships with unbelievers. It probably would be stretching the original language, but accurately understanding the text to point out that the direction we're being sent in is towards outsiders and not away from them. So, 
part of our challenge as we build our culture together is that we are experiencing the benefits of deepening our relationships with each other. And it's largely enjoyable. Yeah, we have some rough moments, but as I relate to most of you, you're enjoying just building relationships with each other. But we also need to be deliberately moving towards those God has connected us to who are not yet believers. No, this isn't always easy. I've been experiencing that with my neighbors. You know, we live such busy lives. You, you get home and you head into the house more often than not. And you're tired and you're done. Uh, and it's hard even when, like, we're in a townhouse complex now, so there are no fences between us. But even in that space, it's just hard to build meaningful relationships with people. Nobody seems to have the time or interest in building friendships with their neighbors. So we've been living where we are for a bit over a year. One of the things I've come to believe is that God places us exactly where we live and chooses those that we're going to live among. And I'm convinced that a part of that is for the sake of the gospel. So from the start, though it's been hard, I've been deliberate about acknowledging my neighbors when I see them and getting to know their names. I actually had to get a little electronic document and write down names so that I would remember them after getting them the first time. And sometimes just pull it out quickly. Who's outside? Uh, what house was that? Oh, okay, okay. That's so-and-so. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go beyond saying hi and bye in conversations. What's been fascinating is that slowly but surely and through some situations that I've recognized as God's providence, like a fire and the kids breaking a pipe that belonged to a neighbor, we've actually been building closer relationships. Yeah, that, the fire was not fun, but the, 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 the couple whose house was closest to the one that was burning, because we attended to them and served them during all of that, the way they greet us now is completely different. I mean, this morning I saw him and I said, Happy Father's Day, and his face lit up. And it's not the kind of, you know, when you're saying, when you're doing the polite hi and bye, it's like, oh, hi. That's not what, where we are anymore. No, there's a recognition of another person and there's joy in seeing them. So I'm glad that we've reached that point where people will engage me in a two-minute conversation and they'll share their joys with me a little bit. I've been praying for families by name and just kind of what are the names of the kids and writing them down and just praying for them. But I, I felt a bit stuck at this point. So a couple weeks ago, I was talking to Matt Barr, who's very good at this kind of stuff, and I was asking for his advice on kind of moving conversations beyond that, that nice cordial, how things going, what's happening with the kids, uh, towards the gospel. So he said some helpful things, and as we talked, I recognized that there's some potential openings that I already have. So please pray for me as I try to move closer. My grace group is praying with me in this, and so I'll keep you posted as to how it's going. This command in Colossians highlights one important aspect of wise living. Look at the second part of verse 5. Making the best use of the time. Wisdom understands the brevity and unpredictability of our lives and the lives of those around us who don't know Jesus. And the wise response to that knowledge is to be frugal but not frantic. We need to learn to be deliberate and strategic. That's what I'm aiming to do with my neighbors. So, Maury Harris comments this way in commenting on this text. He says, Christians are to seize eagerly and use wisely every opportunity afforded them by time to promote the kingdom of God. To seize eagerly and use wisely the opportunities afforded to us. No, we have to be careful because we've been wired like the others around us to pour our time into pursuing our own life goals or caring for our own families or pursuing our own enjoyment. 
But how can you make better use of your time by investing it in getting to know the outsiders who are right outside of your life? Are there immediate neighbors or family members that you have close but superficial relationships with? Or co-workers who you have the opportunity to get to know better? How can you be strategic in, in whom you choose to have lunch with? Or pursue a hobby with? Or to exercise with? I want to challenge you to take some time today or this week to pray that God would open your eyes to see those he wants you to move towards. And please share your thoughts with those in your grace group and ask them to journey with you in prayer and to encourage you so that we can be doing this together. Here's something I said four years ago, which is more true now than it was then. A part of walking in wisdom towards outsiders is, a part of making the best use of the time is managing our digital entanglements. You see, the technology that we carry around with us each day is truly amazing. It's also designed to be addictive. There's a reason you, you, you stand up in a line and want to head back to IG or head to that game you've been playing. We carry quicksand in our pockets, and if we're not careful, it sucks us in. It can connect us to people who are far away from us and alienate us from those who are right around us. How are, you, how are you doing at giving attention to people when you are physically with them? You know, it's not only our teenagers who need to be trained in this, you know, but all of us. When we're physically with people, are we away because we're somewhere else digitally? Are we tethered to our phones and missing out on the opportunity for meaningful, embodied conversations where we can communicate through attentive listening, eye contact, and learn to... Learn, learn to take in not just people's words, but their tone and their body language. How many times are you doing that distracted listening? You know, your child or your spouse or your friend is talking to you and you kind of hear and there at the same time. And you're, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you, 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 you are catching some of what they're saying, but you're not focusing on them. You're not, you're not seeing their face. So you miss it like if they start to get upset because you're on the phone. You don't even see it because you're on the phone, you know? Um, body language is such an important part of how we communicate and observing it is such an important part of how you start to move beyond surface conversations you see we can send any emoji we want on our phones but we often cannot hide our hearts the way they show on our faces and in our affect we're being called here to deliberately live our lives in close proximity to outsiders so that they will have the opportunity to witness and experience the grace of God in our lives and by God's grace, put their trust in the one who's blessing us. This is what it means to live in ways marked by Christ's wisdom. And Proverbs 11.30 sums it up wonderfully. The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. The Apostle Paul goes on from here to focus his attention on how we speak and live among those who are not believers. Oh, sorry, how we speak as we live among those who are not believers. So we are to speak in ways that are marked by Christ's grace. So look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's a connection here between Paul's speech and ours. In verse 4 of this chapter, Paul asks for prayer that he would speak with clarity as he preaches the gospel. The good news that God restores us to right relationships with himself through faith in Jesus. Now he teaches us, uh, now he teaches these believers that their speech should be full of grace. There is nothing more gracious than the gospel. 
Most of these Colossian believers were not called to a career in gospel proclamation. Now that's true for the vast majority of you also. But we are called to share the good news of Jesus with others. And as Mark Maynell observes, if the message is one of grace, then the way it is communicated must be characterized by graciousness. While Paul definitely has gospel proclamation in view here, he's not speaking to that exclusively, as if we should be concerned with speaking graciously only when we are talking about Jesus. That would be one surefire way to undermine your attempts to share Jesus with others. All of our conversations should be flavored with the grace that we have received through Jesus. So, do you cuss people out when you think that they deserve it? Jesus did not speak that way. He didn't didn't speak to us in the way we deserve to be spoken to. Imagine what he would have sounded like if he did. He spoke words of invitation to us, his enemies, and words of forgiveness to us, undeserving sinners. Do we talk down to people who are below us in their station in life and social standing? There was no one who was more important than Jesus. Yet the way he spoke with others, with outcasts, with beggars, with children, with thieves made them feel how loved and how important they were. As believers, we are supposed to be streams of refreshment in a parched world. Do you realize that a lot of the people you may interact with on a daily basis probably have very few life-giving conversations? Security guards, bagpackers at the supermarket, receptionists, restaurant workers, bank tellers, customer service representatives. I mean, in most of these spaces, what we bring is our impatience. So you step in, and I'm always amazed because, you know, I'll be in a line and the line is getting long, and somebody who comes at the very end of the line is the first to complain. I'm like, but you haven't been here any time. Why are you complaining about how slowly they're going? How do you know how fast they're going yet? You You just showed up. But that's what a lot of people get each day, just our angst as we are hurrying to move on to the next thing. We have the opportunity as those who Jesus has spoken words of blessing over to bless people with our speech. I mean, you can acknowledge their presence and ask how they're doing. You can show interest and take opportunities to get to know people. Just like Jesus, even your passing interactions can leave people in a better state than the one in which you found them. That's the effect that we are called to have on the world around us. And living this way opens doors of gospel opportunity. Paul says to us that our speech should be seasoned with salt. Picking up on the language of Jesus in Matthew 5 where he taught the disciples, you are the salt of the earth. There are lots of overtones here. If your speech is seasoned with salt, then saltiness is going to come out in everything you say. Just like every bite of well-seasoned food. Such speech is life-preserving and flavor-enhancing. But one of the dominant ideas here is that our speech should be interesting and even witty. Christians are not supposed to be boring people to talk to. That's because we have every reason to be interested in those around us. Because God is interested in them. And we see the world through a gospel lens which is insightful and realistic and hopeful. And if, as Colossians teaches, everything exists for Jesus, then we can learn to take an interest in the things that others are interested in. And when we talk about Jesus, it should not sound as if we scooped something out of a can that had been sitting on a shelf forever and plopped it on a plate and dropped it in front of someone. It should be like a lovingly prepared home-cooked meal. But that will only be true if day after day our appetite for Jesus is being satisfied as we are discovering new delights in Him. 
So speaking of Jesus is a lot less of, okay, what was the script I was learning several years ago? And a lot more of what am I delighting in in Christ right now? Paul's teaching in Ephesians helps us to fill out the picture of how God's grace is meant to renovate our speech by telling us how we're not to talk and how we are to talk. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. A few verses later in Ephesians 5.4, Paul commands, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You see, our speech, brothers and sisters, reveals the things that captivate and dominate us. If money captivates us, it will come out in our conversation. If anger dominates our hearts, it will be heard in our words. God transforms our speech by transforming our hearts. So this is not only about self-censorship. You don't have to be born again to censor yourself. But hearts and imaginations that are captivated by and filled with the grace of God will delight in the self-control that reflects Jesus and will overflow with thanksgiving that is not forced but is natural. That call for thanksgiving, if you were to read through the, the book of Colossians, and I encourage you just to do that this week, it probably only takes about 15, 15 to 20 minutes. I don't think it's as long as 20. It's four chapters, not very long. That call for thanksgiving is on repeat in this book. And there's something wonderfully gracious about someone who is constantly giving thanks for the grace of God in their life. I mean, weird perhaps, but wonderful. I've said this before, but for those of you who you you find this to be a continual struggle, one of the most practical things you can do is start a Thanksgiving journal. Start writing down one thing or three things that you're thankful for each day. And don't repeat. This is where it gets interesting. When you refuse to say, I'm thankful for my husband again. But you're coming up with new things each day to be thankful for. What you start to do when you do that is you start to actually search for the things God is doing. You start to have eyes open to what God is doing. And you start to become, uh, the things you're, you're discontent about start to fall a little more to the back of your mind. Now, all of this about our speech does not mean that we never say hard things that people don't want to hear or that we never bring correction. Sometimes that is what fits the occasion. Jesus definitely did not have reservations about rebuking or correcting people. Saying hard things is one of the ways we can bring grace to the life of others. Proverbs 27, 5-6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. When we're living in, in, in the ways this passage calls us to, as the world around us, around us sees and benefits from the wisdom of God and hears the grace of God in our conversation, something is going to happen. They're going to have some questions. In fact, if the way we live makes complete sense to those around us who don't trust in Jesus and are not living for the hope of his re- return, then we need to check ourselves. As we are transformed by God's grace, The people whom we're inviting uh, into our lives who don't know Jesus are going to have questions. And it's going to give us an opportunity to give them answers. It's going to give us the opportunity to point them to Jesus. I've I've noticed that with with one of my neighbors in particular. She started to notice my reply to questions. And I can see see the questions forming in her mind and she's starting to articulate them. So I'm looking for the next opportunity just to, 
to lean into that some more. This verse then is about what we call apologetics. But here it's not the stuff of lectures or debates, but the stuff of everyday life. Every Christian is an apologist, a person called to give a reasoned explanation for their trust in Jesus and the way that they live in the world as a result. Now, if you're not a believer, but for some reason you've become more and more curious about Jesus, one of the best ways to grow in understanding the good news about Jesus is to ask some questions of those who you know are Christians and in whom you see something different and distinct. And as always, we would be glad to answer any questions that you have. So please don't hesitate to to talk to any one of us. Our text says how you ought to answer each person. Speaking of Jesus is not one size fits all. Each person will have different questions. Some might be curious or confused by us. Others might be argumentative and hostile. But we can learn to give gracious answers in each case. Knowing how to answer each person is not just a matter of speaking though. It's first a matter of thoughtful listening and questions. Listen again to the wisdom taught to us in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 15:28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. As I thought about these Proverbs, I was struck by the way that Jesus embodied them when he was on earth. Uh, The gospel uh, records for us in different instances conversations he had with people from very different backgrounds and who are in very different situations. Attentive listening is in and of itself an act of love and opens the hearts of others to listen to us when we eventually speak. Sometimes the answers we give to people around us are superficial and not particularly helpful because we haven't taken the time to lovingly listen and carefully and prayerfully consider how we can serve them with our words and point them to Jesus. A wise friend of mine once said to me that he never answers the first question he's asked because he's found that the first question is not usually the real question. So he tends to ask people a question in response to their question and probe a bit more. Well, I'll do it with you and we'll see if you get used to it. <laughs> yeah, but I thought it was interesting because, yeah, he, he, he really found that people will lead with a question, but that's not really what's on their heart. Sometimes they don't even know what's on their heart. And as you listen and kind of say, so what, 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 are you re- what are you really getting at here? What do you want to understand? Or what's bothering you about that? You start to realize that the question was kind of off to the side and they're finding it as they talk to you. One of the most significant and wise intellectuals of the 20th century was Francis Schaeffer. When he was asked what he'd do if he had an hour to share the gospel with someone, his response was that he'd listen for 55 minutes. And then in the last five minutes, he would have something meaningful to say. In my pride, I've often thought within just five minutes that I've figured out what I need to say to a person. Uh, Hearing Schaefer's approach has helped me to slow down and has humbled me. You know, we, we can take a lot of delight in thinking we're answering well when we're not actually meeting a person where they are. I want to encourage you to take this passage and to pray it this week, this coming week and beyond. What this kind of prayer does is to shape our desires according to God's will. So we can pray, Father, fill me with your wisdom by filling me with Christ. Give me more of him and cause that wisdom to shape the way I live my whole life. 
Help me to be deliberate in building relationships with people that you've put around me. Give me a heart of love for them. Help me to be aware of the opportunities that you give me to bless others and to point them to Jesus. May the grace that you have shown me in Christ overflow in how I speak to others each day. Help me to answer questions well and to slow down and listen long enough to hear what the real question is. Praying this way is seeking God's help in obeying him. And when we pray according to his will, we know that he hears us and he will grant the request that we have asked of him. The aroma of our lives and words ought to be marked by the wisdom and grace of our Savior. We want to grow in our participation in Jesus' continuing mission to reconcile others to God. To do that effectively, we need to be concerned with much more than what we'll say in a moment uh, when, when that moment presents itself to share the gospel. We need to be concerned with living in ways marked by Christ's wisdom and speaking in ways marked by Christ's grace each day. We need to learn to make the best use of the time we've been given in the relationships God has brought us into. No, we are sometimes foolish and we are always fallible. But God has opened our eyes and he wants to use our conduct and our conversations to open the eyes of others. As we grow in wisdom, we will increasingly be a blessing to those God has brought into our lives, our families, our friends, our co-workers and our neighbors. And as we continue to learn the fullness of the grace of God to us, undeserving sinners, our hearts will be transformed by that grace and out of the abundance of our hearts, our mouths will speak. Now, do you feel overwhelmed by this mandate? Do you carry a sense of your own failure or a sense of frustration at many missed opportunities? I know I'm there. Well, if you are, take heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Humbly confess your frustration, your weakness, your sin, and ask for his help. He gives grace to the humble. He is the wisdom of God and he's freely given himself to us. Even in our missteps and outright failures, we cannot exhaust His grace. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are in Him and He is at work in you, transforming you into His own image. Believe His word and prayerfully walk this week into seeking to live in ways marked by Christ's wisdom and speak in ways marked by Christ's grace for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that... Uh, even in this mandate of evangelism, even in uh, giving us this responsibility to go into the world and make disciples of people around us, uh, you did not leave us without wisdom. You didn't leave us without the kind of instructions that shape our hearts and our postures and our priorities. Lord, uh, we pray that your wisdom would shape us, even this week, that we would have a greater awareness of people around us as we step into this week. Lord, we can move so fast. We can be so focused on the things we think are most important and miss people that you put in our paths. Lord, the truth is right now there are people in our lives that we haven't noticed in the way you want us to notice them. Open our eyes to see them, Lord. Help us to see them with your eyes, to see your love for them, your desire for them to draw near to Jesus. Help us to see them lost and in need of a Savior. And Lord, give us courage. Lord, we recognize that courage really is love. So help us to love people more than we love ourselves. Help us to love people more than we love our comfort. Uh, help us, Lord, to grow in wisdom uh, so that our lives have an aroma which is attractive to people. And they bring people to us. Help us, Lord, to speak with grace, 
So that when we're ready to speak the gospel, people aren't surprised and say, well, who is this now? What is this going on? But it fits with how we have spoken over time. And they begin to understand, oh, this is why. It's Jesus why this person is the way they are. So Lord, we pray that our lives would be pleasing to you. We pray that we would live in your grace and forgiveness even as we stumble and fail. Uh, and we'd always know that you are making your face shine on us and being gracious to us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.